All right, so um, today's a new year. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those opportunities we have, even though it's so routine, right? Because it's all we're doing is celebrating that we went around the sun again. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's a great opportunity for us as, as people to think uh, freshly again about uh, our lives, about uh, what God has done for us in the last 12 months and look forward to what he may do. Uh, for the next 12 months. And, and so as we, as we think about a new year, we, we often, most of the time, what comes up is resolutions, right? We all, maybe not all, but many of us, at least culturally, uh, a lot of us try to take this as a fresh start to do something better, uh, to do something different. Uh, for some, that might be very commonly is eat better, exercise more, right? Those kinds of things. Uh, just get healthier, some of us may uh, resolve to spend less time online and more time in real life, which you should just do anyways. Um, right? Some of us might decide that we're going to read more, or read the Bible, or read a specific book, or whatever. Right? Like we're just, we, we see this as a year where, or an opportunity where we can kind of restart and be better, be better people. Um, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong about that un- unless we believe that by being better people, we somehow earn a greater favor from God. Of course, we know that the gospel speaks to our lives, not in our, not in our uh, successes, but ultimately in our failures. And uh, it's going to sound kind of weird, but I'm, I want to take us to a passage in the, in the scriptures where we see a very famous character in the Old Testament in his most profound failure. And I hope that encourages you. Because, like, if this guy can fail so miserably, <laughs> uh, that means there's grace for us too. And, and it really is a part of life, right? There, there is uh, a sense in which New, Year's, New Year is like an optimistic time to start something fresh, and there's certainly good in that. It's also, uh, on the flip side of that coin, can be a, a really painful thing to reflect on all the things that have been uh, bad and hard and difficult in the last year. So... Uh, the, the world in which we live is a mixed bag of those things. Um, Christianity is not all uh, roses and wonder uh, here on earth because we live in a fallen world. We know that there's an eternity for us that will be full of eternal joys. Um, but in the, in the midst of that, as we're sojourning through this world, uh, we don't always experience that. And uh, as we, but I should say, as we work through this this world, we do see glimmers of joys and, and, and encounters with the Lord. And so we need to count all of that as a part of the life we're called to live. And so uh, I, I want to uh, help us, and this is just something that I, I think the Lord impressed upon me uh, to share with you this morning. And again, it's just sort of a one-off thing uh, that we're going to do. But this is a passage that God has used so profoundly in my life throughout many years particularly when I'm discouraged, when I feel disillusioned, when I'm disappointed, when things aren't working out. Uh, he, he draws my mind back to this, this story. And it's, in, uh, it's actually in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19 is where we're going to primarily be. But to see, the, to see what happens in chapter 19, we need to look before that a little bit so that we have some context for what's happening. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there or, or tap, tap your phone over to uh, 1 Kings, we'll, we'll be primarily in 18 and 19 uh, this, this morning. But I think it's, 
I think it's going to be um, good for us to see this as we start a new year and, and work our way through uh, where God is and how he speaks into uh, not only the profound successes we experience, which we see in this passage, but also the profound disappointments. And, and the world really is, our, ex, our lives as human beings really are both of those. It's a series of successes and failures. It's a series of, of highs and lows. And so uh, that's where we're going to go today. And we're going we're gonna to read about a guy named Elijah. Elijah is probably the most famous of the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, there was a lot of anticipation and expectation that Elijah would actually return. Um, and and there, there, so Elijah plays a very prominent role in the story of uh, the Jews and the, the people of Israel. Um, uh, but he had a, uh, a ministry that was definitely a mixed bag of, of highs and lows, of, of successes and failures. And so just to set it into context, Elijah serves predominantly during uh, a particular king's reign. The king is named Ahab. Ahab is a terrible king, uh, the, the worst, probably, actually. Um, there, there's a summary statement of Ahab's reign uh, in uh, chapter 16. Uh, we read about the beginning of his reign in verse 29. It says, The 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So now there's Judah and there's Israel. The, the kingdom has been divided uh, since Solomon's death. And so there's two kingdoms, uh, Judah and Israel. And so Ahab reigns over Israel. And it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Which, that's a long time for someone so terrible to be allowed to, to run the country. Um, but look at the summary statement in verse 30. This basically sum, summarizes his whole thing. Uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's, that's impressive, right? Okay, because there was some pretty evil stuff before him. So he's doing more evil than all who came before him. And verse 31 says, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. Uh, okay, so this is all just setting up this guy named Ahab. Ahab's going to play a role in the story that we see, and Jezebel's going to play a pretty big role in this story as well. And so what you see is you have King Ahab. He reigns for 22 years. He's the most evil king up to that point for sure, and probably um, hard to beat even going forward. Uh, he takes this uh, wife uh, named Jezebel. She's not from Israel. She's from a different kingdom, the Sidonians. And uh, she brings all of her Baal worship. Baal was a false god in the, in the uh, ancient Near East uh, at that time. Baal was brought in to be worshipped. And Ahab just embraces this false religion and ultimately leads the people of Israel into this false religion. And so lots of, lot, lots of evil there happening. Um, so... Here's what happens, though, as we, as we kind of work through the story. Again, we're not going to be able to look at all of this, but just to summarize what happens to get us up to chapter 19, uh, there is 
uh, a drought in Israel. God brings a drought uh, to kind of sh- shake the people out of their apathy. Um, and it, get, it comes to a head where uh, God ha- has to do something. And, and so he calls Elijah to confront Ahab. And Elijah's job is to say, hey, we're going to have a showdown. Um, we're going to prove once and for all whether Baal is God or whether the Lord is God. And this is probably a story you're familiar with. Perhaps it's where they meet on Mount Carmel. And that's chapter 18. They meet on this mountain, the prophets of Baal, and then Elijah kind of standing as like the sole prophet, the lone prophet of God. And they have this confrontation where uh, the, the prophets of Baal are praying to him and trying to get him to send fire from heaven. That was what the challenge was, was the first God to send fire from heaven onto this altar is the true God of Israel. And of course, Baal being a false God who doesn't really exist, doesn't respond. And yet Elijah then prays to the Lord and the Lord sends fire upon the altar. And ultimately um, the prophets of Baal are killed uh, Elijah leads the people of Israel in, into this cleansing of all these evil people and gets rid of them. And we're told that uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who is another false god, um, were, were on this mountain and they were ultimately uh, destroyed by, by the people of Israel waking up to the reality that God is God. So, so you think about this story, and again, this isn't the primary uh, text that we're going to look at, but this story sets the tone for what happens in the next chapter. And this story in 1 Kings 18 displays probably the highest spiritual moment in uh, Elijah's ministry. And, and it, it, it is the thing that God does to bring the people of Israel, despite their leadership, despite their king, into a place of, wow, I, we need to worship the Lord again. And, and Elijah is able to see this revival happen among the people. It may have been a short-lived revival, but it was still a glimmer of hope that the people of Israel had soft hearts to the Lord. And so uh, you have this absolutely incredible thing that happens. Um, God is doing something massive, and he shows himself to be the true God. The, the story begins in um, verse 17, well, at least where we're going to pick it up, in, of chapter 18. And it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, why is King Ahab calling Elijah the troubler of Israel? Well, it's because Elijah has been the bearer of the news that God's going to create a drought and, uh, and, and not allow there to be any rain. So Ahab sees Elijah as the troubler of Israel. But Elijah responds in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So there's the, the challenge, right? And here's, this is just really uh, uh, incredible that King Ahab is so delusional that he thinks that he's not the problem. He thinks Elijah's the problem. <laughs> and Elijah's going, 
uh, bro, you got this all backwards. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not the trouble of Israel. You are. So everyone has their own set of facts, right? And that's, that, we see that even today. Like, everybody can kind of create their narrative. And uh, the narrative that Ahab has created is that Elijah's the problem. And Elijah is going, no, you're the problem. Uh, but ultimately, they have this showdown. And, and they bring uh, about uh, God's uh, power. Okay, so I think that's enough to get us to chapter 19. Um, here's, here's what's incredible. As we keep reading the story, we see something really uh, shocking happen, actually. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 19, let's read down to verse 4. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Uh, let's stop there for just a second. He's, uh, so here's what happens, right? Um, the, the prophets of Baal are killed and Elijah's leading the charge and Ahab goes back to his house and talks to Jezebel about what's happened. And he tells Jezebel all that happened on Mount Carmel. And she decides to send a letter to Elijah or she sends a message to him. And the message is, it's kind of in, in the ESV's translation, it's a little bit wordy, but basically she says, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the message essentially is if, if I don't kill you by tomorrow, uh, then I hope the gods kill me. She makes a vow to kill him. Um, now, here's the thing. He, it, as we read this story in its context, we, we should probably uh, expect Elijah to go, go ahead and try. Like, I've just seen God do the most incredible thing. This, this one guy was able to lead uh, uh, th- this whole group of people to take out all these prophets he really has nothing to be afraid of. Here's this crazy person, this, this, this woman that is probably insane, um, who is threatening to kill him. And you would think his response would be, all right, whatever. But that's not his response. This is what's remarkable. Look at verse three and four. It says, then he, Elijah, was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is a really crazy response in light of what we've just seen, right? Like this, this is like almost out of the blue. Uh, Elijah goes from confident prophet of the Lord who is basically bulletproof because God's on his side to having a, a message from uh, the queen saying, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And he absolutely loses it and just collapses 
under the fear. He, he is afraid. He runs for his life. He ditches his servant, which doesn't make any sense, right? Except that he's just distraught. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he, uh, he ditches his servant somewhere in Judah. And then he just runs into the wilderness. What, what is happening here? The reaction might come as a surprise to us, but uh, what we, we need to recognize that this is not that uncommon. And in fact, some of the greatest discouragements that we face come on the heels of some of the greatest successes. Spiritual highs lead to some of the most profound spiritual lows. Uh, I've seen it in my life. You've probably seen it in your life in some way or another. Elijah certainly saw it in his life. We, we would think if, we're think if we're reading this from a distance, which we are, right, and we're not in Elijah's shoes and we're not him, uh, we're just reading the story as it's been conveyed through the scriptures and we're just kind of standing above it and we're looking, well, that's not a rational response. But since when is anything that we do really rational, right? <laughs> Most of the time we don't respond rationally to things in the moment, we respond to things emotionally. And that's what he's doing. And his emotions have, have run well, rampant with fear. Fear is an emotion, right? And he's afraid and he's, he's just acting in a way that lives out that fear. So he gets to a place where he falls down, exhausted in the wilderness. He finds a little bit of shade under a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is. I didn't bother to look that up, but it's probably a little bush of some sort. And he, he finds uh, a little bit of rest there. And here's what he does. He sits down under this tree and he says something to the Lord. He prays. And what does he pray? Verse four, it is enough. He says, I'm done. That's what he says. God, you can just kill me now. That's, that's dark, right? And that, that's, that's gotten him to a, a dark place. And it's such an interesting thing that he's gotten here with what triggered that. What triggered that was just a crazy woman named Jezebel who was saying she's going to kill him by tomorrow. And, and there's no real teeth to that threat. But he takes it very, very seriously. And he's just at the, he's at the end of his rope so what happens next? Well, let's look at verse 5 through 8. Let's keep reading the story. It says, he, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And that's going to be important in just a minute. But let's look at what's happening first. Uh, Elijah gets to his breaking point. He collapses. Uh, he asks the Lord to take his life away to let him just be done with all of this. He's experiencing probably the most profound low of his life. And, and yet, what, here's what God does. God gives him what we would call today is common grace. 
what does he let him do? He lets him sleep. And he lets him eat. And he gives him food and sustenance. He allows him rest. I had a professor in, in Bible college back in, back in the day who uh, used to tell us that sometimes sleep is the most spiritual thing you can do. God gives us these graces and he allows uh, Elijah this rest. And sometimes we need that rest too. And God sustains us as he sustains Elijah in the midst of his fear. God sent an, an angel to serve Elijah. The reason he sent an angel to serve Elijah was because Elijah foolishly ditched his, his helper. <laughs> and um, so, sometimes God has to do something miraculous like that for us. But most of the time, God uses the people in our lives to help us through these things. We don't, we don't have to go through these things alone. Um, and God will sustain us in the moments where we have to be alone. But most of the time, it's people that God sends to help us and gives us in our lives, whether that's a spouse or a friend or a family member of some other sort. But here we have Elijah. He doesn't have anyone. He's alone. He wasn't alone. He didn't start alone, but he left his, his companion behind, runs for his life, and then God meets him there with an angel who provides him with what he needs. So what happens next? Well, he eats and drinks and he gets up and he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to a place that we're told here at the end of verse 8 is Horeb, the Mount of God. Now that's a significant thing that we're given that detail. Um, Elijah could have hid anywhere. Lots of mountains, lots of caves, lots of places to hide in Israel. But Elijah goes to a particular place. He goes to a place called Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, what is that? Where is that? Well, that's a significant location. It's the same mountain that we're told in the book of Exodus is where God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. So that's going to be an important detail as we keep reading the story. Let's look at verse 9. It says, There in, at Mount Horeb he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God speaks to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's an interesting question, right? Because God knows everything, right? We all know this. God knows everything. He's omniscient. Uh, why does God ask the question if God already knows the answer? Well, the, the answer to that is, he asks for the benefit of the person he's asking the question of. He does the same in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. He says, where are you? He knew where they were. He wanted them to own up to where they were. He asks questions of Job. In fact, the end of Job, the last few uh, chapters of Job, are just a string of questions that God asks Job. <laughs> and he's like, hey, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? And the answer is, well, I wasn't even born yet, right? And he asks these questions to make us come to grips with what's happening. And here in this particular question, he asks this, what are you doing here, Elijah? So here, here's where we need to think about this a little bit. What is, what, where is the emphasis in this question? This, this question on its surface seems pretty simple, but I, but I think that uh, there's a particular emphasis that God's uh, trying to get at. 
with Elijah. So he could be emphasizing, what are you doing here? As in, like, what's the purpose of your visit? Why are you here? Okay. Or it could be, what are you doing here? As in, somebody else could be here, but why are you here? Is that what God's asking? Well, I don't think so. I think the emphasis actually lands on, what are you doing here, Elijah? The reason I think that is because the text gives us the, the, the location in which Elijah is, and that's not just any old place. God is asking Elijah, I think, why are you specifically here in this place right now? What are you doing here at Mount Horeb, the Mount of God? What are you doing here, Elijah? And I think as we continue to read the story, we're going to see that that's really the point that God is making. But let's look at Elijah's response in verse 10. Uh, It says, He responded, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So what is Elijah's response? Well, it's um, not a great one, but it's basically uh, shifting blame and is saying, listen, God, um, I'm, I've been jealous for you. I've been doing my part. But look at what's happened. The people of Israel have forsaken you. <clears throat> they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And then look at the emphasis here. I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Basically, he's going, you've done this to me, God. You have allowed this to happen to me. I've done my part. You haven't lived up to your part. That's what he's saying. I'm the only one left, which actually is factually incorrect. He's not the only prophet left. We know that because we can read, I think it's back in chapter uh, um, 16 or 17, um, where Obadiah, who wrote a book of the Bible, was a contemporary of Elijah's. Obadiah tells Elijah before Mount Carmel that he has taken a hundred of the prophets of the Lord and has hid them in caves so that Jezebel can't kill them. So there's at least 101 other prophets, perhaps more, that are faithful to the Lord, that are loving the Lord, that are there with Elijah, but he is throwing a pity party for himself and wants to believe that he's the only one left. Factually inaccurate, but that's how he feels. And so he tells the Lord, this is basically, subtext is, this is all your fault, God. Look at what's happened to me. Verse 11, it says, And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper that could also be translated a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice, uh, there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So what happens in the story, right? The story is um, God tells Elijah to go out outside the cave and God passes by him. Um, God decides to show Elijah something. He decides to teach him something. And what he does is he sends a, a series of natural events, a uh, g- giant hurricane force wind that tears the rocks apart. But we're told God's not in the wind. He sends an earthquake to that mountain, but God says he's not in that earthquake. Uh, then he sends a fire, which is significant because of the location of where he is. God spoke to Moses in a bush that was on fire, through the fire. God's not in that fire though, not this one, not the one for Elijah. But where does God come in? He comes in through this fourth thing, which is described as a low whisper or a thin silence. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because God is teaching Elijah and us something about himself. He's teaching this, that you don't have to be uh, in a particular place or have a particular experience for God to work in your life. God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that question is significant because he wants Elijah to get to the point where he says, truthfully, I don't know why I'm here. I don't need to be here. God, you're always with me. You're, you're in every moment. I don't need to be in this place at this time. God uses this series of events to teach him that He's looking for something huge. He's looking to be rattled. He's looking for God to show up like he did on Mount Carmel. And God does show up in amazing ways at times, but not always. And if we're always looking for the miracle, the giant movement of God, the, the huge thing that God's gonna do, then, then we're gonna miss the point that God is actually always with us, even in the silence sometimes most profoundly in the silence. And so he asks Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And how does Elijah respond? Look at verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Exact same answer. Word for word. Elijah is digging in his heels here. And and he's going, God, I'm still mad at you. I'm still blaming you. Man, 
how often are we in that boat? Right? <laughs> I mean, I, we're not, I'm not here casting judgment on Elijah because I do the exact same thing. And yet this is the, the point is that Elijah doesn't get what God's trying to say to him. Or if he gets it intellectually, he's not getting it on the emotional level. And so he just says the same thing he said at the, at the start. He doesn't change his response. So what happens in the story? Well, we, we don't have time to read the whole story, but it's a sad story, actually. Um, ultimately, God tells Elijah, all right, you're done. We'll retire you. You can, you can finish up here. And he tells him to go appoint Elisha to take his place. And Elijah hangs in there for the, the remainder of the book of 1 Kings, but then he's, then he's out. Um, he doesn't finish very well in this. Um, but, but that's like, it's understandable, right? It, because we, we all have these same struggles that Elijah has. We all have on various levels with obviously different circumstances. Elijah was unique in his role in his, as a prophet. He was unique in what God had called him to do. But every one of us who is in relationship with God goes through seasons in which we are just mad at him we don't understand what he's doing. We become embittered at, at him even. But unlike Elijah, we have something better to look at. And I think the gospel of Jesus Christ actually profoundly speaks into these things so that we don't end our story in quite the same way he does. What, where, where does Jesus come into this story? Where can we see him in this? Well, I've got a few things to, to point us to. Um, and, and these are just some of the things that I, I think are um, implied in the text. They're things that we should be drawing out of it. Um, from Elijah's experience, we should be able to see that there are some real gaps in what's happening here in his understanding. So here's the first thing I, I would point you to. Um, we are told in the New Testament in particular, but we're also told in this text, that there is no singular place that we have to go to be with God. Where do we go to be with God? We go to a person, and his name is Jesus. There's no one else and there's nowhere else you don't have to come into a church building to be with God. You don't have to even be out in nature to be with God. You, you don't have to have some spiritual explosive moment in your life to be with God. You don't have to try to rekindle your joy in God by going to some retreat or camp. As much as God uses those things in our lives, as much as he uses the local church and, and retreats and nature, and of course he uses all those things, but none of those things are ultimately where we go to be with God. And if that's what we think, then for forever we're going to be anxious about not feeling it. Like, if, if our whole gauge of our, our faith in Jesus is how we're feeling it, we're, we're going to be perpetually disappointed. 
Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it if you don't want to turn there. But the whole letter to the Hebrews begins with this point. Right? And it makes sense because the, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were Hebrews. That's, that's clear, right? And they believed, at least deeply, the people of Israel had a theology for centuries that to, to be with God, they had to be in a physical temple. And, and the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, it may have been Paul. It may have been Apollos. There's a number of theories out there, but whoever writes it, it's anonymous, so we don't know. But they dispel this whole myth. Look at what he says. A long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, so... All that Old Testament history, what, we're just, what we just read in 1 Kings, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets. Verse 2 is key though. But in these last days, meaning from Christ's death and resurrection forward, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, so here we're seeing the writer of Hebrews from the very outset of the book, the very beginning of the book, going, you, you know God spoke in lots of ways in, through lots of different people, but now who does he speak through? It's Jesus. Jesus is the person that we must go to to be with God. And if we're not going to him and we're trying to find uh, all of God's work outside of him in some other way or place, we're always going to be dis- discouraged. Secondly, here's another point I, I think we can draw from this passage in 1 Kings. Elijah deeply felt abandoned and alone. You can agree or disagree with the, the statement he said, and I think we should disagree with it because the Bible tells us he was wrong about it. Like He wasn't the only one left, but he felt that way. He deeply felt abandoned by God. He, he felt so abandoned by God that he wanted to, to die and then traveled for 40 days to get to a place where he believed God would be. He was so distraught by it. But here we need a dose of reality. Elijah wasn't truly abandoned. He may have felt like it, but he wasn't. But you know who was abandoned? Jesus Jesus was the only one who has truly been rejected and alone. You have never truly been rejected or alone, and neither have I. We may feel that way, but it isn't true because it is only Jesus who on the cross experienced the full rejection of God, who was completely turned away, who was utterly destitute, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I may feel forsaken, but we are not forsaken because of Jesus. But he was. 
And yet, unlike Elijah, Jesus never threw in the towel. He didn't quit. He perfectly obeyed all the way to the end. Again, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Verse 2 tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In verse 3, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see what the writer of Hebrews is telling us? He's saying it's so easy for us to want to quit in the midst of difficulty, to quit this Christian thing altogether. It might just be easier not to do it at all. But the point of this passage is this. We need to look at Jesus who endured his race all the way to the end so that we could endure ours. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. How do we not grow weary or faint-hearted according to that text? Consider him. Look to him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. One more. I think it's fair to say that Elijah uh, faced a deep and profound sense of uh, danger. Right? That's how all this gets tipped up, uh, on its head. It's, he's told at the beginning of this passage that Jezebel wants to kill him. He feels the danger in that. He doesn't know what to do with it. He freaks out and loses his, his cool. So how does the gospel speak into that when we feel that? Well, you hopefully don't have a lot of people trying to kill you, but um, you probably do feel a sense of danger in some way or another, whether that's, you know, cultural or personal health problems, financial problems, political problems, right? Whatever, whatever it is, we all feel the dangers of this life in one, one way or another. So how does, how does God speak into that for us? Well, it's this, that the risen Jesus, the Jesus who died and rose again, is truly our safety, he is the hope that we have to have in the trials of life. Paul experienced this profoundly in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy we preached through a while back, and it's, uh, this was his last letter that we have in the Bible. Um, and he, he wrote it just perhaps months or weeks before he died. And he says this to Timothy, he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So at his first defense before the Roman authorities, no, he had no friends with him there. He says, may it not be charged against them. He was utterly alone in this, in this moment. In the, but then he says this, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
But then verse 18 is crucial. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. As Paul looked at on his impending execution, he looked at it with clear eyes that whether God preserves his life physically on earth or whether God does not, there is safety and deliverance for him in this. As we begin a new year, this is an opportunity for us to pray and hope for a happy new year, right? A good new year. But we don't have any assurances that it will be. Maybe it'll be smooth and comfortable and maybe it won't be. And that may be, you know, every individual person has uh, a different experience throughout the year, right? Nobody has a universal experience with these things. And so what happens if we, uh, if, if what God has for us is not what we want him to have for us? What will we make of our suffering or our doubts or our fears this year? What are we going to do if emotionally we don't feel it or we're not into it or we just don't want to be a part of this thing? And this is, this is what we need to do. We need to heed the scriptures. Right? We need to consider Jesus. Look to him. See the bigger picture that he has for us. Uh, the fact that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. That he actually has a purpose and a, and a plan for our goods and bads. And we need to ultimately be reminded that God's purpose for us is an eternal purpose. It's not just a momentary purpose. It's not just what God has to do for the next 365 days and that's all that matters. No, what we need to continue to draw our hearts back to is that God is doing everything, even in these next 365 days, he's doing everything ultimately to lead us to his kingdom there was a passage uh, from a, a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached a long, long time ago, 1860s. Uh, he called the sermon The Plowman. And uh, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, does the plowman plow all day? And how does Spurgeon apply that passage to us? Here's what he says. He says, it may be that in the case of some of you, the Lord has been using certain painful agencies to till you, to till the soil of your life. That's what a plow does. You are feeling the terrors of the law or the bitterness of sin or the holiness of God or the weakness of the flesh and the shadow of the wrath to come. Is this going to last forever? Will it continue until your spirit fails and your soul expires? Listen, does the plowman plow all day? No, he's preparing for something else. He plows in order to sow. So does the Lord deal with you. Therefore be of good courage. There is an ending to the wounding and the slaying and better things are in store for you. You are poor and needy. You seek water and there is none and you're thirsty, but the Lord will hear you and deliver you. He will not contend forever. He will turn again. He will have compassion on you. He will come and cast the precious seeds of comfort and water it with the dews of heaven 
and smile upon it with the sunlight of his grace. And there will soon be in you a blade and then an ear and then the full crop so that in due season you will rejoice in the harvest. That's so helpful. Because we have, we have something Elijah doesn't have, didn't have. We have the fullness of the Lord Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. And so we can have hope. So even when you feel like the darkness isn't going to lift or you just want to give up, we need to remember Jesus will bring a harvest of righteousness into your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, abundant goodness to us, that you do not count our sins against us, that you do not, uh, that you have taken every sin from us through Christ, that you have been raised from the dead to give us an eternity that we could never achieve on our own. We pray, God, in, in your mercy that you would speak to us and help us as we start a new year. May we keep our eyes clear and focused on your work and your reality of, of, and the goodness that you have for us. May, may we endure because you endured. And we pray that you would help us in these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take some time this morning to sing together and uh, rejoice in what the Lord has done. And ultimately,